Hello everyone, thanks so much for joining me again on Book Insights. I'm Tom Butler-Bowden. The aim of the show is pretty simple. We do deep dives into the great non-fiction books and we're pretty agnostic about what we cover. So one week you might get the key ideas from a recent bestseller and another week we'll be looking at a centuries-old classic. Every book we look at will really make you think in some way and some will even improve your life. So today's book insight, we're looking at Martin Seligman's psychology classic, Learned Optimism, How to Change Your Mind and Your Life. Before we start this week's episode, let's put it into some context. The book came out in the early 1990s, but is seminal for several reasons. The first is that it helped found a whole new field called positive psychology. For a very long time, there was only really two schools about human behavior in psychology. We were pushed by internal urges, that was the Freudian view, or we were pulled by the rewards or punishments that society provided. That was the view of the behavioral school. So there wasn't much room for proactive thought and behavior in those models. But in the 1960s, cognitive psychologists like Albert Ellis and Aaron Beck made a simple but non-obvious observation. Our thoughts don't come from our emotions, which is what it feels like. Actually, it's how and what we think that brings emotions into being. That meant if you could change your thinking, your life could change for the better. Psychology had also been almost exclusively about problems with mental health. But Martin Seligman wondered why it couldn't also be about attaining the positive states, how to be happy, how to be optimistic. Believe it or not, that was a revolutionary idea and was initially discounted by his profession. But in learned optimism, he provided a scientific foundation for many of the claims made in the self-help field. We are a culture of self-improvers today because we know self-improvement is possible. Psychological science proves it. Seligman's book was one of the first of a huge new genre of writing we now call popular psychology. Now, as we learned last week in The Happiness Advantage, conventional thinking is that success creates optimism. But the evidence laid out by Seligman shows the reverse to be true. On a repeat basis, optimism tends to deliver success. As you'll learn via Seligman's own research into life insurance agents. He does admit there is one area in which pessimists excel, and that is seeing a situation accurately. Some professions like accounting and safety engineering need down-to-earth pessimists, of course. In his book, Business at the Speed of Thought, Bill Gates discusses this very trait lauding the Microsoft employees who could tell him what was going wrong and tell him quickly. But remember that Gates was also a dreamer par excellence, who at a very young age imagined a world in which every person had their own computer. That's a pretty optimistic vision and should tell us that the combination of realism and optimism is unbeatable. So in this book, Insight, we'll look into how pessimism can lead to depression, which was an important part of his research but also how optimism can lead to success at work, school, sports, and health. The insight is split into three parts and runs to 20 to 30 minutes. And it also has a few clips of Martin Seligman speaking, which I hope you'll enjoy. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and the platform you're listening on so you'll get a weekly notification of new episodes. And if you'd like 24-7 unlimited access to our library of over 100 book insights, just go to memo.com forward slash insights. You'll see the link posted on the podcast description. Anyway, I'd love your feedback on the podcast since we haven't been going for very long now. So please leave comments or at least rate it. Okay, let's get into our book insight on Learned Optimism by Martin Seligman. In 1964, a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, Richard Solomon, conducted a failed experiment. He was studying the reactions of dogs to exposure to high-pitched sounds and electric shocks. It was supposed to be an extension of the famous conditioning experiments of salivating dogs undertaken by Ivan Pavlov. Surprisingly, the dogs didn't respond to the electric shocks at all. Solomon and his assistants were perplexed. They thought there was something wrong with the dogs because their behavior was contrary to the established theories. However, one new graduate student realized something everyone else missed. Over the previous weeks, these dogs had been subjected to multiple experiments involving electric shocks, some of which they couldn't escape. The dogs had learned that whatever they did, they would be shocked, so they had given up trying to avoid it. In other words, they had learned to be helpless. That day marked the beginning of research on learned helplessness. The student, then 21, was Martin Seligman. Later studies applied the principle to people, but using noise instead of shocks. These found that learned helplessness can be engineered in human minds just as easily. But there were exceptions. As with the dog experiments, some human subjects never became helpless. They kept pressing buttons on a panel in an attempt to shut off the noise, even if it seemed to make no difference. What made these subjects different from the others? Seligman's later research led him to study depression. He found that the most effective solution to depression is to change the patient's thoughts to change their explanatory style from pessimism to optimism. Paradoxically, out of studies of helplessness and pessimism came valuable findings on the power of optimism. Seligman is known as the father of positive psychology, or the study of human flourishing as opposed to human problems. He's a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and a former president of the American Psychological Association. Seligman's now classic work, Learned Optimism, How to Change Your Mind and Your Life, was published in 1991. It's still one of the best books for understanding positive psychology and the power of optimism and possible causes of depression. We'll begin our exploration of the book by examining two ways of looking at life, pessimism and optimism. We'll then see how pessimism can lead to depression. Next, we'll discuss how optimism leads to success at work, school, sports, and health. Last, and most importantly, we'll learn how to become more optimistic. Let's start by analyzing how you explain adversity to yourself. Recall the last bad event that happened to you. The way you think about it has more influence on the quality of your life than you may realize, determining your mood, happiness, and success. This isn't an exaggerated claim about the power of mind. It's the main conclusion of decades of rigorous psychological research done by Seligman and others. 
Imagine that you're an insurance agent calling prospective clients. You've just spoken with an angry man who shouted that he hates unsolicited calls and hung up on you. There are two primary ways you could explain this event to yourself. If you're a pessimist, your thinking will likely go along the lines of, I'll never be able to sell anything, everyone will reject me, and I'm a lousy and incompetent agent. Of course, the more you think this way, the less likely you'll be to move on, call the next person, and eventually close a sale. You manage to muster your last reserves of motivation and willpower and reach for the phone. But you're stressed, sad, and don't really believe that you'll succeed. Your prospect detects this in your voice and thinks that you're unconvinced by your product, so they reject you. At the end of the day, you've sold no insurance and go home hating your job. Now, if you're of an optimistic bent, you'll deal with the same situation quite differently. You'll see the call as just 20 seconds of inconvenience, and there's no point sweating the small stuff. The man was simply in a bad mood when you called him, you think, but it's his problem, not yours. Your next prospect is bound to be better. Besides, your average is 3 sales for every 10 calls you make, and that's your 5th rejection in a row, so you're about to close 3 clients in no time. Feeling confident, you dial the next number, give a great pitch, and close the sale. This energizes you to make a few more calls before you leave the office as a winner. The same event, two completely different outcomes. Here is Seligman discussing his findings on optimism and pessimism during a lecture at the University of Pennsylvania. So we began to do large-scale, long-term studies of depression, in which, for example, we would take 10 to 12-year-old kids and we'd measure optimism and pessimism hundreds now thousands of kids and then we just watched them as they went through puberty and what we found for children and for adults was that pessimistic children have between two and eight times the risk of uh, having a moderate to severe depression as they go through puberty whereas optimistic children uh, are at much less risk Seligman calls optimism and pessimism explanatory styles. These styles differ along three dimensions, permanence, pervasiveness, and personalization, which we'll go into now. Permanence refers to the time that you expect adverse events to last. You make statements like, you never talk to me, and my boss is a bastard. You believe that the causes of the misfortunes will persist and always affect you. Seligman suggests that it's much better to use temporary interpretations. For example, you haven't talked to me lately, and the boss is in a bad mood. Pervasiveness is about the areas of your life that are affected by adversity. Pessimists use universal explanations, such as, all teachers are unfair, books are useless, or my whole life is worthless. But to develop an optimistic exploratory style, you should treat bad events as specific and localized. You could say to yourself, Professor Brown is unfair, and this book is useless. You don't condemn all teachers and all books, many of which must be fair and useful. The third dimension of explanatory style is personalization. Saying to yourself that you have no luck at poker is preferable to blaming a lost game on your inherent lack of skill or talent. When you identify external circumstances, such as luck, randomness, or bad weather, the benefit you gain is that you won't lose your self-confidence. But this has a cost in terms of accurate perception of yourself. 
Seligman tells how he once lived with a woman who blamed everything on him, whether it was bad meals out, late flights, or creases on her dry clean trousers. When he pointed this out, she replied, Yes, and it's all your fault! The most important insight from learned optimism is that you should pay more attention to your internal dialogue and change it when needed. We've learned that you can look at the world through a pessimistic or an optimistic perspective. All of us at certain times have given pessimism free reign in response to events. This is normal. What matters is that you develop a default style for dealing with setbacks that won't put you into a negative thinking spiral, which can then turn into depression. Let's pause for now. Next part, we'll continue our discussion on Martin Seligman's learned optimism by learning how pessimism can lead to depression. Then we'll break down how optimism can lead to success at work, school, sports, and health. Enjoying this episode of Book Insights? If so, keep listening and learning. There's a collection of over a hundred titles you can read or listen to now at memodapp.com/insights. That's m-e-m-o-d-a-p-p.com/insights. We are continuing our deep dive into author and psychologist Martin Seligman's learned optimism. First, we'll look in more depth at why something so seemingly innocuous as explaining small misfortunes as permanent, pervasive, and personal can have the end result of a person wanting to take their own life. Then, we'll see what tangible benefits you can expect if you learn to be more optimistic. Even in the 1990s, Seligman was warning against the unprecedented increases in rates of depression. He was prophetic. According to the World Health Organization, over 300 million people of all ages suffer from depression, with women being about 50% more likely to have the disorder. It's associated with rising rates of suicide, which is now the second main cause of death in teenagers and young adults. Almost a million people take their own lives every year. A healthy dose of pessimism can be useful, but only under specific circumstances. Pessimistic thinking comes in handy when the stakes are high. It's certainly better for air traffic controllers, safety engineers, and accountants to err on the side of caution and try to find the downside of every situation. Similarly, you should do your best to protect yourself from dying, financial ruin, or divorce. However, for most people most of the time, Pessimism is detrimental. Seligman spent a significant part of his career on studying this causal relationship between pessimism and helplessness. We've learned about the experiment in which dogs became helpless. In later studies, Seligman found that dogs also extrapolated their helplessness to other situations. When they were placed in a box with two compartments between which they could easily jump to avoid the pain, they didn't even try to escape. They lay down waiting for the next shock. A similar thing happened with experiments involving humans and noise. Just like the dogs, those people who had previously learned that nothing they could do had any effect simply gave up trying. But about one-third of both people and dogs never gave in to helplessness. They kept trying to find a solution no matter what. As we've learned, if you have a pessimistic explanatory style, you treat failures as your fault affecting all areas of your life and lasting a long time. The more such negative thoughts persist, 
the more you convince yourself that they'll never go away. You constantly ruminate over your problems and become overwhelmed by them. This sense of prolonged helplessness results in depression. There are nine main symptoms of depression. Depressed mood, loss of interest in usual activities, loss of appetite, insomnia, slow thought or movement, loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness and guilt, diminished ability to think and poor concentration, and suicidal thought or action. If you suffer from five or more of the above maladies, you may be experiencing a major depressive episode. Discussing this may be, well, depressing, but it's important to understand the costs of a pessimistic explanatory style. If you let occasional, seemingly harmless negative thoughts overtake your thinking, over time, they can turn you into a pessimist. The results can be learned helplessness and depression. Here is Seligman during a University of Pennsylvania lecture discussing the correlation between depression and pessimism. What happens if you systematically teach pessimistic children and pessimistic adults the tools of disputing their ca catastrophizing explanatory style? And the short answer is you uh, statistically prevent depression and anxiety. There are other, more subtle costs that pessimists pay in various areas of their lives. In the next section, we'll see how optimists earn more, perform better at sports, have higher grades, and better health than their pessimistic counterparts. After that, we'll learn specific techniques to make you more optimistic. Apart from performing controlled lab experiments, Martin Seligman has done a lot of research applying his theories about helplessness and explanatory style into real-life contexts. Let's start with your work life. According to traditional psychology theories and common wisdom, success is determined by ability and motivation. Seligman thought that this formula was incomplete. He had known many highly competent and motivated people who simply gave up after major failures. He predicted that the missing element in success was persistence, and that the key to not giving up was having an optimistic explanatory style. Seligman decided to test his new theory in a work setting characterized by frequent failure, selling life insurance. Insurance agents must deal with rejection virtually all the time, especially when they are cold calling, that is, trying to sell policies to strangers over the phone. On average, less than 10% of calls are successful. In the early 1980s, Seligman partnered with the insurance giant Metropolitan Life to help with their recruitment strategy. The statistics were truly discouraging. Out of 60,000 applicants each year, only 5,000 were hired. 50% of those quit in the first year, and 80% left within four years. The unsuccessful agents left miserable and often suffered from chronic depression. The company lost $75 million annually in hiring costs alone. MetLife's tests and screening processes ensured that the new agents were competent and ambitious enough for the challenging jobs. But somehow, this wasn't translating to success. The successful MetLife recruits possessed the two traditional ingredients of success, aptitude and ambition. Seligman's research proved that they were lacking the third element, optimism. He surveyed MetLife's agents and found that the optimistic half sold 56% more insurance than the pessimistic half. That questionnaire data was later supported 
by the Special Force Study. MetLife agreed to create a team of 129 optimistic agents who tested just below the standard recruitment test's passing rate. The results confirmed that what they lacked in technical skills, they more than made up for in optimism. In the first year, they sold 21% more insurance than the seemingly more qualified pessimists. In the second year, the optimists increased this advantage to 27%. Optimism can also serve as a secret weapon for politicians. One of Seligman's studies found that in the 1988 presidential and Senate elections, more optimistic candidates were much more likely to win. In fact, by analyzing the mood of their campaign speeches, he correctly predicted the winners of 86% of the Senate races. Optimism and perseverance at work function in similar ways at school and with sports. At all levels of education, Optimists outperform pessimists. Students who believe they can learn and grow do so more effectively. On the other hand, pessimistic children lack confidence in their abilities, and their negative explanatory style becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They feel helpless after every poor grade and lack of a will to learn. Eventually, they may become depressed. This can be further exacerbated by unfortunate life events, such as parents separating, family deaths, or relocation. Misfortunes happen to all students, but optimists don't interpret them as pervasive and permanent, so temporary family problems don't affect their long-term performance. Seligman has also found that optimistic students perform better at sports. He studied the varsity swimming team at the University of California's Berkeley campus in 1988. The coaches were advised to lie to the swimmers, saying that their lap times were significantly worse than they really were, yet still credible. This enabled Seligman to experimentally simulate failure. The whole varsity team was then asked to swim again. As you might guess by now, the optimistic swimmers treated the defeat as a challenge to be overcome. Consequently, their times improved in the next event. The pessimists felt defeated and therefore swam even slower. Here is Martin Seligman speaking at a 2016 Action for Happiness event in London. We've shown with Olympic swimming that optimistic swimmers, when they're defeated, uh, swim faster afterwards. Optimistic uh, pitchers in baseball uh, uh, in close games get better, and pessimistic pitchers get worse. So optimism is one variable that I, I'm pretty convinced with, uh, within sports is important. Let's now discuss the last major area of life where optimism gives a competitive advantage, health. Seligman identifies four reasons why a negative explanatory style leads to poor well-being among pessimists. Firstly, feelings of helplessness actually weaken the immune system. Secondly, those unwilling to seek medical advice and take care of their bodies believe that sickness is permanent, pervasive, and personal. Thirdly, when misfortunes happen, such as the death of a spouse, divorce, or loss of job, pessimists are afflicted more severely. Finally, negative and depressed individuals are less likely to have strong social support. Socially isolated people are at a much higher risk of becoming ill and even dying. The relationship between an optimistic mindset and physical well-being is a scientifically validated testimony to the power of the mind. But you don't have to know anything about the field of psychoneuroimmunology to reap the benefits of optimism.
You can improve your career, health, education, and family life by applying very simple techniques developed by Seligman. We'll learn how in the next part. Enjoying this episode of Book Insights? If so, keep listening and learning. There's a collection of over 100 titles you can read or listen to now at memodeapp.com slash insights. That's M-E-M-O-D-A-P-P dot com slash insights. We are concluding our exploration into University of Pennsylvania professor and psychologist Martin Seligman's Learned Optimism. In this part, we'll learn how to become more optimistic. We'll then briefly review everything we discussed, then consider the wider implications of Seligman's book. You might expect a book titled Learned Optimism, written by the world's authority on the subject, to be full of techniques that would teach you to be more optimistic. You may be surprised to learn that Seligman teaches only one simple technique. The ABCDE model has been rigorously validated and applied in many kinds of cognitive behavioral therapies, corporate trainings, and educational interventions for decades. The method was originally developed by Albert Ellis, a pioneering psychologist. The acronym stands for Adversity, Belief, Consequences, Disputation, and Energization. The first part of the process is to identify the ABCs. Whenever an adversity occurs, you react by thinking about it. Your thoughts quickly coalesce into a belief about the problem. This belief, in turn, influences your feelings, mood, and behavior. Those are the consequences. Let's illustrate this with one of Seligman's examples. Adversity. Your best friend hasn't returned your phone calls. Belief. You think that it's because you're always selfish and inconsiderate. Consequence. You're feeling sad and depressed all day. Seligman urges you to keep a personal ABC diary. You need to record five ABCs from your own life. When you encounter adversity, pay very close attention to what is going on in your mind. These thoughts will form your belief about the unfortunate situation. Notice if it describes the adversity as permanent, pervasive, and personal. As we've learned, these are the characteristics of a pessimistic explanatory style. Next, you should record all the consequences stemming from that belief. Note your feelings, emotions, moods, and actions. Becoming aware of your mental dialogue is the first step towards changing your beliefs. The next stage is disputation, which Seligman calls the prime technique for learned optimism. It's your most important weapon to defeat helplessness and depression. Disputation is about arguing with yourself by analyzing the adversity or setback from a more optimistic perspective. You reinterpret its meaning from long-term, universal and internal, to temporary, specific, and external. There are four major ways to make disputations effective. Evidence, alternatives, implications, and usefulness. Evidence is probably the most convincing. If you can prove that your belief is factually incorrect, it will become unsustainable. For example, if your friend hasn't returned your phone calls, that's all you know for now. It doesn't mean that you're always selfish and inconsiderate. 
you can surely find many instances when you were altruistic and caring. The more such pieces of evidence you can gather, the stronger the case against your negative belief will become. The second way is to look for alternatives. Most events in life have many causes. Perhaps your friend had good reasons not to call you back. She might have been extremely busy those days, or her phone might have broken. You don't know, so why should you assume the worst possible scenario? Even if your negative belief is true, you should consider the implications. There's no need to catastrophize. Even if your friend didn't want to call you because you were selfish and inconsiderate, you can always take action, like doing something kind to her next time you meet. Not calling back a few times isn't the end of the world. Finally, you should ask yourself if your belief is useful. What are the benefits of ruminating and repeating to yourself how selfish you are? Will dwelling about it right now help to improve the situation? Seligman uses an example of a bomb disposal technician who suddenly thinks that it could go off and kill him. If he continues thinking like that, he'll get stressed, fearful, and his hands will start shaking. That's not useful while defusing a bomb. In this scenario, you should distract yourself from your pessimistic thoughts for now and assign a time to worry about it later. Once you've effectively disputed your belief about the severity of the misfortune, you're ready to move on to the final step of the ABCDE model, energization. You should now describe how you're feeling after the disputation stage is over, and add it to your notes about your five recent adversities. For example, you might feel more hopeful, less angry, and more at peace with yourself and your friend because you understood that not returning calls isn't such a big deal. A variation of the ABCDE technique is what Seligman calls the externalization of voices. It works like this. You ask your spouse or a close friend to criticize you for 20 minutes. If this sounds harsh, consider how much time you spend criticizing yourself. Your partner plays the role of your internal voice. They read your descriptions of adversities and your resulting beliefs out loud. Your task is to dispute these accusations using your optimistic arsenal. Evidence, alternative causes, implications, and usefulness. When you learn to win the argument with your friend, you'll be better prepared to dispute your inner pessimist. Don't be discouraged by the simplicity of the ABCDE technique. Some of the most important things in life are straightforward, and small changes to everyday thinking habits can give you all the benefits of optimism. Why not give it a try? In this section, we've seen that your primary weapon against pessimism and depression is disputation. You can start to learn optimism by analyzing your five latest adversities and finding more optimistic interpretations. With some practice, it will become second nature to you. We're coming towards the end of our discussion of Martin Seligman's Learned Optimism. Let's review the four key insights from the book. First, we looked at two ways of looking at life, optimistic and pessimistic. Optimists view obstacles as temporary and specific challenges, while pessimists interpret their failures as permanent, pervasive, and personal. A pessimistic explanatory style causes feelings of helplessness. Humans and other animals learn to be helpless when they convince themselves that they have no control over their lives. This is how pessimism can lead to depression, which is now a global epidemic and a major cause of suicide. After discussing the perils of pessimism, 
we examined how optimism leads to success at work, school, sports, and health, using examples of life insurance agents, politicians, school children, and varsity swimmers. We elaborated on the multiple ways in which it pays to be an optimist. Finally, we learn techniques that can help you become more optimistic. The key strategy against pessimism and helplessness is disputation. It's the fourth step in the ABCDE model, which will enable you to reinterpret your beliefs about adversity in a more positive light. It's the fourth step in the ABCDE model, which will enable you to reinterpret your beliefs about adversity in a more positive light. Seligman argues that the culprits in the global depression epidemic are the waxing of the self and the waning of the commons. By this, he means that modern society exalts the self. Individuals are expected to be the best versions of themselves, accept full responsibility for their lives, and achieve success through personal control. These inflated expectations put too much pressure on us, resulting in stress and feelings of helplessness which can lead to depression. This is intensified by the second problem, a diminished sense of community and a loss of higher purpose. Belief in the nation, a deity, or some transcendental higher purpose have waned over the years. The individual is not only expected to solve all his problems, but also to solve them alone without help from his family, community, or God. Psychology has helped to fill some of the void. Learned optimism became a foundational work in the new field of positive psychology, which focuses on human flourishing as opposed to human problems. It's perhaps ironic that this focus came about through the study of helplessness, but significant findings are often counterintuitive. In his popular 2004 TED Talk, Martin Seligman explained the aims of the new science that he helped to establish. Psychology should be just as concerned with human strength as it is with weakness. It should be uh, just as concerned with building strength as with repairing damage. It should be interested in the best things in life. And it should be just as concerned with making the lives of normal people fulfilling and with genius, with nurturing high talent. In Learned Optimism, Seligman does not present a Pollyanna view of the world. He simply says that it's possible to have the pessimist's ability to reality check without succumbing to the dark shadows of negative thinking. His research is not simply about optimism or pessimism, although it may well turn you into an optimist, but the possibility of personal change itself and the dynamic nature of the human condition. Thank you for listening to Book Insights. Check out the rest of our content at memodap.com. Please keep in mind that the information provided in or through our Book Insights episodes is for educational and informational purposes only. It's not intended to be a substitute for advice given by qualified professionals and should not be relied upon to disregard or delay seeking professional advice. Thank you.